0: We're going to get in the Word now. Turn to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. If you think of the book of Proverbs, there's probably one word you think of, and that is wisdom. wisdom, right? Excellent. We're going to talk about wisdom for a few minutes and then get in some practical applications, I trust, for where you're at right now in your Christian walk with the Lord at your young age. And... Uh, Go specifically to Proverbs chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I've got it up on the screen as well. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Solomon was diligent in teaching his son, wasn't he? Solomon made that one great request to God for wisdom, and God granted that. Of all the things he could have asked for, he wanted wisdom. And he wanted that for his son as well. He wanted his son to be successful. He wanted his son not to go off the path of godly success. He didn't want his son to go down in the ditch and go off on a detour in sinful pursuits that would derail his life and his relationship with God. He cared about his son. And here's a few verses here that I'll read that show this great care and concern and a care and concern that God has for you as well. He says in verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 2, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. This, As I read this passage and I thought about it prior to today, I'm thinking, man, this is one encouraging passage for you. It helps us when we realize that we don't have all the answers in life. Uh, There might be times this year when you kind of run into a wall, and like, what do I do now? You run out of gas, and there's just nothing left in the tank. You're overwhelmed with decisions, and you just don't know which one, which fire to put out. Yeah, you just know the house is burning down, right? And look at verse 6. It's that glass of cool, refreshing water when the fire's burning, or sweet tea, if you prefer. It quenches that dry thirst. Look at that, that there again in verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. Our great God delights in giving us what we need to make good decisions for Him. It's God's intention that we have everything we need to navigate through life for His name, for His glory, and to do it on His terms, His success, His definition of success. And yet, when you see there in verse 6 that the Lord gives wisdom, you see throughout the passage there's something required of us as well. It isn't let go and let God that I may have wisdom this school year and know what's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do and there's difficult decisions and there's two good decisions and I don't know which one to choose and how do I handle all this? Well, the Lord gives wisdom. But look what it says here that's required of us. Look at verse one. Receive my words. You see also there in verse one, treasure, man, just, just think highly of them. Keep them in your heart. Make this something you're, that this becomes a part of the fabric of your life, the Word of God, the, the, the truths of God. Look at verse 2. Incline your heart. Fashion your heart. Move your heart. Intentionality here, right? This isn't something like Velcro on the wall, and if it sticks, you know, it'll work. No, this is intentionality. The Word of God sticks, but we have to pursue it. And so you incline your heart. To know what God has to say, look in verse three. It says, "Call out, raise your voice, make a diligent search for wisdom." Okay, wisdom. What does wisdom look like? Thought I'd show you a picture here of proverbial wisdom. Right? Uh, no, it's not a Solomon selfie. Um, I, I googled wise man. Guess what I Google wise man, what I get a lot of when I click images? A lot of old people. There's always white hair. And there's always a beard. Okay? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It just dawned on me. Maybe I'm in there somewhere. Yeah, when we think of wisdom, When the world thinks of wisdom, this is what we think. You know, I've been around the block. I know more than you do. You know, it's about IQ. It's about what you know. It's about having a book. Studious. Intelligence. Einstein-y looking, right? You know what I mean? And really, when you think of Einstein, you kind of think a little aloof. Very intelligent, but whoo, you know. What I want you to get here is wisdom is not merely what you know, nor it is guaranteed for someone who has lived to old age. You can have all the things. You can have all the degrees in the world. You can read every book at the L.U. library. You can get all that and not have wisdom. What is wisdom? Look what uh, Spurgeon said here. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge, all right? So it's not exclusive from knowledge. Wisdom includes knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is not a fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. It's the use of knowledge and the right kind of knowledge. You look here, uh, godly wisdom, I'll just give you a definition. We're not just talking about wisdom of the world, right? I mean, it's great when I talk to some of you guys and I, you, know, you, you hear a clickety-clack, clickety-clack under the hood of your car, and some of you guys can just kind of listen to that and say, oh, well, that's this, or that's that. And I like, I don't have a clue, but I'm glad you do. And, uh, and that's, that's good wisdom to have. That's practical stuff. What we're talking about here is spiritual wisdom, godly wisdom, to navigate properly through life as a follower of Christ, and it's skillfully making God-honoring decisions through the purposeful application of God's truth that makes sense? I know God's truth, but I have to take it past there. I have to apply it. I have to use it. I have to think it through. I have to incline my heart to it. I have to call out for understanding. I, I, I have to bring it into my heart to make a skillful use of knowledge. Oh, if you can get anything today, get this. Just coming here today and getting knowledge is not spiritual growth. It's a step in the right direction. I'm glad you're here. I hope you learn a lot, but don't stop with knowledge. It's the application of that knowledge that leads to wisdom. And that's where God gives great, great blessing. Wisdom. Godly wisdom. You know, I look at you guys and, man, you're young. You guys got energy. You're smart. I I forget more things each day than you guys learn. I mean, it's just like, wow, you're just sponges. God's working in your life. So much to look forward to, so much to look ahead to. Just praying with this group up here, just hearing prayers and and, and dependence on God was encouraging to my soul. What What a unique and exciting part of your life and to be here today. And in this stage of life, whether you're in the working world right now, whether you're in a gap year, whether you're in the throes of a first, second, third, fourth year, or further, um, whatever your route might be, I believe God has you in this special time in this unique young part of your life as really an incubator, a time to learn, a time in your single years to commit yourself to truth and the application of it, that God may prepare you for the life ahead. So what we're going to be doing um, this week and next week are we're going to dive into eight specific areas that are what I believe relevant for your life, college life primarily, and shine God's word on them, and consider specific ways to address these particular areas of truth in your life now. And over the course of the two weeks, we're going to cover eight different topics. Now, it's going to feel like eight different sermons, okay? So we're going to be kind of like going from one place to another, and we're going to be a little schizo, okay, running around. And uh, so if it feels disjointed, that's okay. You're just going to be, um, yeah, it might feel like class tomorrow. You're going to be learning uh, these various truths that I feel are important for you. And what I'm going to call the series is this, eight lessons I wish I learned when I went to college, all right? Eight lessons I wished I learned when I went to college." And there he is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Woo! there's the picture of wisdom. Um, yeah, um, that's me in the library at University of Toledo in my tinsel teeth braces there and a lot more hair than I'll ever have again. God did a lot of my life. It wasn't college. I came to know Christ. Wow, I didn't deserve that. I did not come looking for God, but he found me. I've shared with you before, I had two roommates in college. I was only supposed to have one. The dorm was overbooked. So here I am in this cracker box with three people. Oh, boy. Uh, Thank you. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, between piles of laundry and one roommate growing marijuana in the <laughs> windowsill. Yeah, he had the whole deal. I mean, and the other roommate walked in with a Bible. And quite frankly, I didn't want the Bible. That's not what I was looking for. I was a religious guy. I was raised Catholic. Um, I thought I really had everything I needed. And much like Pastor Farrell talked today, whew, I didn't. And I came to find that out. And through the course of my time there, after trusting Christ and resisting for about a year and a half, I trusted him. And God did a, God did a work in my life. And what I would like to share with you in these eight lessons are things I learned and things I've learned since. And I trust they're an encouragement to you as we look at each item here, okay? So eight lessons I wish i learned when I went to college, and it starts with this. Enjoy college life. You know how the large print giveth and the small print taketh away? Well, Here's one of those right there. <laughs> While guarding your heart. While guarding your heart, enjoy college life. It's okay to have fun in college. I'll just get that out. I heard an amen over here. Any more amens? Okay. Let's just start here. It really is okay to enjoy yourself. Now, you know, sometimes there's this stoic notion that I'm not supposed to have fun or just not show it, right? I'll smile smile at given intervals or... You know, maybe I'll go out with my friends sometimes, and oh, college life, I was saying earlier, it's a crazy blender, right, of responsibilities and things that you really do need to take seriously, and other times there's just absolute mayhem, craziness, and there's no rhyme or reason, but it's just a lot of fun. And in all this, having fun and enjoyable things to do and experiences, uh, we know that God gives us parameters on what's suitable for a believer, and what is it? Well, let's just start right here. God is a giver of good things. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. He's good God. His his role in life is not to make your life miserable. He wants to bless you, encourage you in the right things, right? He gives good gifts to his children for their blessing and enjoyment. It is his character of goodness to bless you. And I encourage you to aim to enjoy God and this unique time of life at LU for fun, to cultivate friendships, to make memories, and to know your God. Now, we have to remember there's caution in having great fun, fun, in making great friends, in generating all those good stories that you'll tell your grandchildren someday, um, which I enjoy doing. I did that over this past week when they were visiting. It's possible to get all that and miss the point of it all. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we easily succumb in the Christian life, and this will be a challenge to you after you graduate as well, to love and desire good things too much. Did you hear what I said there? It's possible to love good things too much. John Calvin famously wrote in his Institutes, he said this, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. In other words, we make things, even good things, too much of a good thing. And when we do, God takes a back seat and we end up worshiping what's created and not the creator. You can pursue good grades. That's a worthy goal. I hope you're doing that, right? Give God glory in your work ethic, in your academic pursuits. But we have to realize we cannot do that at the expense of communing with God and loving others. It should never replace that. It's great to have great friends. It's good. It's proper. It's biblical. We'll be talking about that in a few minutes. But they should never rival your first love for Jesus and his truth. Priorities. Participate in clubs. Get in activities. Get in intramurals. are all great things. But not when it crowds out a commitment to the local church. We were created for something much, much better. Uh, A passage of Scripture here. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, speaking of God's goodness, the joy, the good things he gives us in this life, which you have stored up for those who fear you, right? And work for those who take refuge in here. Those, Those who are pursuing a relationship, reverential awe, honor for him. Where they make God their trust in the sight of children and mankind, Psalm 31, 19. John Piper put it this way. We want to treasure God above all things. That's what it's all about. If you miss that, you're missing it all. As I give you these eight things I wish I learned when I went to college, this would be the first thing on your radar. It's about him, not about you. It's about Him. When this is your ambition, the glory and enjoyment of God, life's decisions become a lot easier. Man, when we're off track, when we're doing our own ways, when it's all about me, oh, confusion, lack of vision, lack of a biblical understanding without a walk with God. Now, there's still tough decisions when you have a walk with God, but oh, when you're gravitating and chasing after him, guess what? Some things that just don't make sense, they just, they just, they just fall away. Why would I go that way? Or why would I do this? It's just not in your heart. It's not, it's not who you are as you're chasing after God. So how do we keep God at the center? Here's my biggest piece of advice. It's right there in Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch your heart. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. Get involved. Do things. Make this a great, enjoyable part of your life. But do it with the Lord, watching your heart. Your heart, the innermost being, your thoughts, your motives, your desires. It's why you do what you do. Your heart. Your actions, your speech, your behavior, they flow from your heart. Again, we're not talking about behavior modification. We're not talking about knowledge only. It's the application of knowledge that includes the ministry of the Word to your heart. So the choice here, we're either pursuing heart after God or we're pursuing something else. Let me give you just three, three things. How can I keep my heart with vigilance, all right? I could probably give you a list of a dozen. Here's three that came to my mind. Pray to the God who knows your heart. Pray to the God who knows your heart. Write this down, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Listen to that prayer. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray to the God who knows your heart. He'll fashion it. He'll change it. He'll mold it. These are the prayers God answers. Two, how can I keep my heart with vigilance? Evaluate your motives and desires with Scripture, not merely your feelings. Right? I say not merely your feelings. Your feelings often react to something. And then we run with it. Let your feelings react to something and then evaluate it with truth. You must do that. You must filter everything with truth. You cannot be wise God's way without bathing and and marinating and cultivating truth in your life. What a blessing you're here this morning. You're hearing truth. You heard it from the pulpit. You're hearing it here. And we need to hear that continually and then put it To work. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning, what? The thoughts and intentions of the heart. And finally, I don't know if Clay's here. He can cheer. Immerse yourself in a healthy local church, all right? (laughs) You know I had to put that in somewhere. Why would I put that there? Well, that's like my catch-all. There's so many other things I could say, but hey, You know, so much of the Christian life is when you do the right things, a lot of things take care of themselves. And when you're committed to a healthy local church, whether that's this one or one down the road that's healthy, the things we're talking about on Thursday night, committed to the Word, godly pastors and teachers, discipleship ministry, all these things, right? Other things take care of themselves. When you gather here, you're encouraged. When you're gathered here, you're praying together. When you're gathered here, you're accountable to one another. When you're gathered here, you're hearing the word of God, whether you expected to hear or not. And God uses that, doesn't he? You're taken to the mat. There's graces that go when you're committed to the right things that God makes important. This is the place where you learn to minister. When I'm just not being served, but I can serve. And so God puts these things together and fashions a heart when we're committed to the right things. So, the first thing we're talking about is enjoy your college life, but guard your heart. Guard your heart. Watch your motives. Why do you do the things you do? What direction am I going in? Am I, think, am I chasing my feelings more than the word? And, guys, there's times we're going to come up against that. I'm lost. I don't have an answer. I'm overwhelmed with my feelings. I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with anxiety. I'm overwhelmed with anger. Or I just have a, just a, a lot of questions that are unanswered. And, I, and that's the blessing of a church, right? To see a boundless leader, to see a pastor, to see a trusted friend, and get the counsel and direction and help that you need and I need as well. Okay, that was lesson number one in eight lessons I wish I'd learned when I was in college. And lesson two is this. Lesson two is this. View difficulties through God's eyes. View difficulties through God's eyes. And though we say difficulties, this is code for trials, all right? (laughs) Trials, hardships, significant challenges. What are trials? Trials are troubling circumstances that disrupt your comfort, peace, and happiness. Difficult circumstances, troubling circumstances, and they're disruptive. They bring adversity, affliction, trouble. If there's ever a place we need God's eyes and his vision, it's in trials. From time to time, I'll either put on Christie's glasses on my nose by accident (laughs) or just kind of goofing around, and I'm like, whoa, man, that's way not my prescription here. (laughs) I mean, everyone's just blobs, right, and it hurts. And uh, my vision is just all messed up, and i got to take it off, because I can see a lot better without glasses than with Christie's, okay? Um, even though I've got the old bifocal thing going myself here. I'm not able to focus properly, properly. I can't discern my surroundings without the right vision, without the right glasses on. And this is what happens in trials. We need God's glasses. We need His view. When troubles come, when trials come, you may be in some right now, it's difficult to see God for who he is and his promises. And we question every one of them. God's no longer good. God's absent. God doesn't know what I'm going through. God can't surely be in control. And if he is, well, he must be impotent, right? Not omnipotent, but impotent. He can't do anything about this. And promises and things just seem to be in question and doubt in our minds and we face significant issues. And therefore, my advice here is knowing trials are coming your way is we have to look at difficulties through God's eyes. Rather than impugn Him and question Him, our point here in the next few points is to understand God's purpose in trials. And when trials come, we can respond biblically. So here's some points about viewing difficulties through God's eyes. And the first one's this. God informs us to anticipate times of testing and trial. Why would God tell us not to be surprised when trial or trouble comes? Because we're always surprised. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? When it comes our way, this can't be happening. I'm the, this was assigned to the wrong person here. Uh, you know, God made some kind of mistake, or or God surely can't be involved in this. And we question what God is doing. And God tells us right here in 1 Peter 4, 12, is don't be surprised. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What are we, what are we, we're getting here. We're getting truth from God to discern that God does use trials. In fact, you see purpose here. You see encouragement here. It's to test us. Don't be surprised. It's here for our testing. I remember my first week in college. I was there at school early, cross-country. I was on a cross-country team at the time. And uh, I was alone. I was lonely. I was sad. I remember going outside my dorm alone this late summer day, and there was this old stump out there right by the woods, and I sat out and I just cried. <laughs> Man, I could have filled a bottle with tears. Man, I missed home, I wanted friends, I was asking why I was even here. My, my heart, it was a trial for me, I was, I was filled with anxiety. And I, I want you guys to know, you, you maybe go some very similar things yourself right now. And the thing, the, the message here in this passage is don't be surprised by it. That's the first thing. God uses trials. And you see here, to test. To test. Now, let's get, that'll take us into our second point here to understand that a little better. And this brings great encouragement. We should not only anticipate times of testing and trial, but God informs us he has great purpose in trials. These aren't just cosmic accidents that came our way and now God's going to march it on a white horse and clean it up for you. He has purpose. He ordains these things for your good. And he has purpose behind that. That should bring encouragement to you. God has a plan. He has an end game. And he's using this very moment, this struggle, to get you there. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is so easy to view a trial as nothing more than an irritant, just something to overcome or whine about. And a passage like this revolutionizes our perspective, doesn't it? It's God in the control tower, navigating and orchestrating it all. And he says here he's doing something profitable and helpful for my benefit. What does he say there in verse 3? He produces steadfastness in trial. God uses trials to produce steadfastness or endurance for the pressure cookers of life. How many of us would study if there wasn't a test, a quiz, a final yeah, maybe about like this, right? <laughs> Zero. Ah, uh, not another quiz. Not a final. You Really, i got to study everything from this past semester? I can't remember what happened the first week of school, right? It's just like crazy. And yet what does it do? It drives us to something to produce an academic accomplishment that you would never do unless you had that before you. In trials, God uses by his righteous good hand to produce something. There's purpose in them. What a comfort to know that God is in control. He's purposeful. And he's making you steadfast. Another way of just saying he's maturing you. He's building spiritual muscle. You've heard it said before, no pain, no gain. Back in my high school, they said, blood makes the grass grow. That was the football team, by the way. That was not, that was not chemistry class. Uh, uh. That's why I was not allowed on the football team. I stuck with cross country. Uh, blood makes the grass grow. And, Moy, what a, what a great way to be shepherded by a faithful God who knows what we need, who knows what we can handle, what we can't, and knows how to draw us to Him to mature us and complete us and give us endurance us and steadfastness. And what He says here is He does this through trials. So don't be surprised at trials. And um, know that God's at work, that he's in the control tower controlling all things. John MacArthur said it well here. When we look at the purpose of trials, I need to know that I'm not a piece of driftwood floating around. I'm not just a stick in a waterfall just going over the edge and being thrown to whatever happens to be under me when I hit bottom. There's a God, a living, sovereign, eternal God in control of every single detail Of my life. And that should give you great comfort and joy when trials hurt. So God has informed us he has great purpose in trials, but also God promises wisdom for the asking in trials. God promises wisdom. James 1, going back to James again in trials, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom in the context of trials and difficulty, Let him ask God. Crazy, isn't it? That's sometimes the last place we go. We're running around like chicken little, skies falling, running here, running there. If you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Go to God, ask him for wisdom. Remember, wisdom is skillfully making God-honoring decisions through the purposeful application of God's truth. You're asking him, Lord, give me the right verses. Lord, give me the right truth. And many times God uses vehicles of grace, means of grace to give us that truth. Like right here, from that pulpit over there, a biblical counselor here, a boundless leader, a pastor. They're means of grace to give you truth where you need it. And when you pray, God loves answering prayers that gives you the truth you need to make skillful decisions with it, right? It's not truth for truth's sake. It's truth to skillfully use. And trials are certainly one of those places we need God's truth. So pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. And then lastly, viewing difficulties through God's eyes, God teaches us his goodness in trials. He is good. He is everything the opposite of what we think when we are going through the fire. He cares for you. He loves you. He is with you every step of the way. When we say these things about trials, we're not saying they're not hard. We're not saying there's not tears. We're not saying there's times that things just seem to be crumbling around us. God teaches us goodness. Look how David put it in Psalm 119. What a testimony. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. What a perspective. He said, Lord, you use this trial. You use this affliction. I was off track, but when you brought this affliction, what does he say? But now I keep your word. You're a good, you are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. He saw the goodness of God. And apparently here, for David, is a little more clear in the rearview mirror. And can't you see that? Can't you look back in your life and see where God has taken you through the fire and he showed himself faithful and good, loving, caring, in control, and he brought you to a place you would never be if he hadn't brought that affliction your way? And sometimes we don't have all the answers, and yet we, by faith, accept that God is good, and he is at work, and he is purposely doing things. Remember Romans 8.28? God works through all things for our good, right? According to his purposes, why? In Romans 8, 28 and 29, for the purpose of making us like his son. It's for good, it's for good. And this is how we see trials through God's eyes. If you're not in a trial now, there'll be some that come. And that's not a promise from me, that's from the Lord. Let's look at trials God's way. And if you need help, you've got friends here You've got more mature believers here ready to pour into your life and help you. Okay, let's keep moving along here. We're going to look at number three in eight things I wish I learned when I went to college. And number three is this. Choose your closest friends carefully. Choose your closest friends carefully. You know, when LU, all you guys came back to school are town was transformed from a sleepy little town into, you know, it's a whole world over there at LU, you know. I'm over here uh, rocking on my chair in the front of my porch, and I can hear birds and all this stuff, and I go to your, your place over there at LU, and man, there's just people going everywhere, and woo, it's just a, all kinds of things going on, and it's just a, it's a machine, right? And you guys are in the middle of that, a lot of great stuff going on, and there's a lot of great people and others that maybe aren't so great. Who should be my closest friends? Anybody? Let's go down the sidewalk. You want to be my closest friend? Hey, come on. Let's go to lunch. Uh, who should be your closest friends? Does God have anything to say about that? Is there anything in his word that would give us direction here? And the answer is yes. Now, we're not going to look at every angle of friendship, right? We don't have the time for that today. We're looking at choosing good friends, biblical friends. Proverbs twelve twenty six: one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Who you pal with is critical. Your best bud, okay, isn't supposed to be just anybody. The Bible here gives us clarity. There are some going in the right direction that'll send you in the right direction with them and others that will lead you on the wrong path. And you've got decisions to make. Who will my closest friends be? Now, we're not talking about acquaintances, We're not talking about sharing the gospel like a number of you guys do when you go down the street. We need associations with them, but your best buds, your pals, the dudes you hang with. Two different kinds of folks here, the righteous and the wicked. And both lead to different destinations. The righteous here are called a guide to others. A guide. How you get around? Our son Austin has been to... Nepal a number of times. We have a ministry there through Allow the Children. Churches were planting in the country there and orphanages and those were, were taken care of and were equipping pastors there. And uh, right there in the northern edge of Nepal, between Nepal and India, is a well, relatively good-sized mountain. Mount Everest. I looked up uh, on Google there. The height of Top. Anyone hiked Sharptop before? I was out of breath when I got up there, but that's a whole 3,875 feet. Mount Everest, 29,000 feet. It's almost five miles up there. And What they do is they take a Sherpa, a Himalayan Himalayan climbing guide. Who in their right mind would take that journey without a guide? Don't answer that question. Uh, Of course you wouldn't to know what direction to go, to know what to do when, when you're hurt or you've taken a wrong turn. You need a guide, someone's experience, someone that knows the way. And in life, God says he uses the influence of other godly people, righteous Sherpas, if you will, to keep us on the right path. And you can see conversely here that there are those that will take us off the wrong path those that aren't seeking after God. There's a corrupting influence on us. It's not a God-centered influence, and it takes us off the proper path. Let's look at another passage here to give us more clarity. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, Proverbs 12.20, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. I was a new Christian in college. And I was kind of excited. Um, My roommate, Dan LaPiccolo, I've talked about him before, I call him the Italian Stallion. 100% Italian, had the temper to go with it, but he knew the gospel. Very helpful to me. Stone cold, dead in sin, brought to life. And I consider Dan to be really like a spiritual father to me. And uh, he's the one that came in walking in our dorm room with the Bible. He became my best friend and I looked up to him. And one day as a young believer, I kind of met this young lady, it wasn't Christy yet, and uh, decided to ask her out for a date. I was a runner, so I'm not sure how romantic it was. We were going a little road race together, okay. And uh, whoo, that sweat. Mm -hmm. And uh, before I went on the date, with it coming, my roommate asked me, hey Rich, is she a Christian? And that question surprised me. Uh, I don't know. As a young Christian, I didn't have a clue. I wasn't even thinking about those things. She's, she's a lady. She looks nice. <laughs> and she runs. I mean, the great trifecta here. And the like guy was all lining up. And uh, Dan's like, is she a Christian? Wow. That was wisdom. The question was wisdom to me. I needed wisdom. He knew I didn't do anything, right? And as my spiritual dad, he's watching after me. What did he show me? Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Associate yourself with wise people. Walk with them. Live with them. Breathe with them. Eat with them. Go on road races with them. Whatever it takes, all right? Associate yourself with with people that are skillfully applying God's word in their life. Where would I be if I had listened to the fool growing the marijuana in our window and told him I was going on a date? Oh, here's a bag, man. Have a great time. (laughs) Right? Wow. It's life-altering, people. God... Is so kind to give us clarity here. The friends you choose are significant, they're important, they're no small thing. Think that through. Now you don't need someone that's going to seminary. (laughs) You know, what what are we talking about here? Let's let's get to a few things. What are we talking about? We're talking about friendships. How do I choose a good friend? A few things. This is not going to be all of them, all right? Just a few things to think about. How do I choose a good friend? First, commit to orienting your own life towards Christ it starts with you. Do you want a good, wise friend? Is that even on your radar? right? God's glory, his purposes, just an inkling. I want to be like God. I don't want to go down the wrong path. I want to please him. And I'm going to attach myself to the right people. But look at your own heart first. 2 Corinthians 5.9. So whether you're at home or away or you make it your aim to please him. And as your love increases for our Lord, you will naturally gravitate toward others that have that same love. That makes sense? Birds are the same feather flock together. Temperatures don't collide cold and hot, man. They, they, they have an equilibrium together. And it's true with your heart. If you're pursuing the right things, you're going to pursue others that are pursuing the right things and get wisdom. Secondly, pray for and seek those that are also pursuing Christ see something in their life where they're using the Bible. They're making spiritual decisions. They just don't forget about what God has to say. That's on their computation. They're thinking that way. They're acting that way. They're not perfect. But they're heading in that direction. I want to attach myself to the people, to the direction God says, I need to go. And you can quickly find out when you're with other people, some are heading in that direction and some have no desire at all. And those with no desire at all should not be your best friends. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying they can't be a friend, but your best friends. Here's a picture of my buds from college. That is not from college, okay. (laughs) We had a birthday party for my sister-in-law last May. And some of the old college gang was there. The guy on the right is the Italian stallion, all right? He delivers babies in Muncie, Indiana now and drives a very fast car. He's a good guy. The two in the middle there, the guy behind Dan, is he came to know Christ. All-conference linebacker, the guy next to him, fullback, was the bodyguard for the mayor of Columbus for years. These are my guys, man. We are close friends. These are the guys, when I prayed for good friends that God gave me, it was this. And they're still great buds today, walking with the Lord. No, it doesn't have to be that way. But God was so gracious. God was so good. Psalm 119.63 says this, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And God gave me good and gracious, wise friends. And we grew together and we still care for each other. Finally, I'll say this, faithful friends are there when, you, when they are needed. Faithful friends are there when they are needed. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. They're there for you. They care. Those are great people to associate with. And not only for your benefit, but for theirs. This is how you can be a good friend, for being there with people when they need you most, to listen, to hear them out, to meet their needs. Choose your closest friends carefully. The Bible makes this no small matter. And if you need help with some of those decisions, please see me, see Clay, see one of our leaders, and we'll help you make those decisions. All right, we're going to continue to jump in our schizophrenic way to our last point. In just a few minutes here, okay? And that's number four. Eight lessons I wish I learned when I went to college. And number four is this. Resist the temptation to maximize self and minimize others. Resist the temptation to maximize self and minimize others. Now, it's not going to be a surprise to you that when I say our culture is fixated on the celebration of self. It's a me party everywhere you go. Right? Look at me here. Look at me there. Look at my accomplishment here. Look at the direction I'm going. Look at my pretty white teeth. Look at my new dress. Look where I got accepted in college. Look what I accomplished here. And on and on and on, right? It's a celebration of me. And oh, how the culture can have an effect on our own hearts. The world's recipe for achieving personal success is all about getting and not about giving. Success is centered on watching out for number one. Success is predicated and fixated on fulfilling my purpose, about achieving my goals. Now, don't misread me here. We need a plan. You do need a, you need a path here in your academic studies. You do need good grades. You do need to pursue goals. You do have to pick a major at some point. You undecided out there. Um, There are right things to plan for and to go for and to work for. But oh, how easily we get trapped into a cycle that prizes my ambition and goals to the exclusion of what God wants to do in my life and specifically for the good of others. We get entangled in the sense of this unhealthy competition that focuses on self-achievement and getting ahead instead of serving those that are around us. Remember what God said about greatness? If we go to Matthew 20, 25 through 28, God put it in a nutshell, and it's radical. It's countercultural. It's mind-blowing. He says there in verse 25, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know what the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, you know, pumping their chest, exercising rule and authority and just this special position they have because of who they are. And it says, it shall not be so among you. It's not about being first. Who is it that's great? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many the path to greatness in God's eyes is to be a servant of others. We mistakenly think that if we give ourselves away, we'll lose everything. When the Bible says the opposite, what does a prophet of man gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's Luke that said in Acts 20.35, quoting the Lord himself, it said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Are we going to believe the Lord here? There's greater blessing in giving than getting. In God's economy, the givers are getters. And the blessed life includes an indispensable element. It's this service to someone else besides myself. And therefore, we have to develop a mindset of a servant. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our model. Jesus is the ultimate God, man, servant. If you want to know how to treat others and how to view yourself, you look to him. So what do you do? How do I serve others? How do I know how to serve others? Well, I'm just going to boil it right down to this because that's what the Lord does in Matthew 7:12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And this is the law and the prophets. It's as simple as that. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Do you want good friendship? Be a good friend to others. If you had no car, you needed a ride from someone? Of course you'd want a ride. Then make you and your car available to give others a lift when they need it. Are you, helping, uh, are you helped when encouraged by others? Then start listening to others yourself. And their needs and encourage them? Do you want help from someone smarter than you when the homework is tough? You chemistry majors, you engineering guys, you nursing people, all you guys, there are times we hit a wall, and, man, I, got, I, got a, I get close to a smart guy here. Then help others with their studies when they have a need. Do you want others to pray for you? Then practice regular prayer for others. Love them. Now, we're not talking about a quid pro quo. If you do something for me, I'll do something for you. It's a model. When you, because you desire help, it reminds us to help others in that same way. Initiate service to others. Give yourself to others. Think of ministry in this local church. Why do we give you ministry opportunities? Why do we tell you about the media ministry last week, children's ministry? Even the MIT class, Learn About Counseling. It's to equip you to love other people, to get off yourself, which our flesh always gravitates towards, to go and serving and expending yourself for the good of others. So join a healthy church. Get involved in a local church. Serve others. Edify others. A friend looks downcast. Ask them, how can I pray for you? What's going on? There's a new face in our crowd. Greet them. Welcome them. Love them the way you would want to be loved. Don't get so far lost in yourself and your goals that you forget how to serve as Christ has served us. And that's it for today. Eight lessons, lessons I wish I'd learned when I went to college. Enjoy college life while guarding your heart. View difficulties through God's eyes. Choose your closest friends carefully. And resist the temptation to maximize self and minimize others. So I'm letting you off a minute or two late. And Clay's going to get that choir thing going. So if you want to get into that choir meeting, get over there. I'm going to close briefly in prayer, and then book and do what you need to do. Let's close. Father, thank you for the blessing of this day. Thank you for your word that gives clarity. Thank you for wisdom for the asking. Make us wise people that want to be like you and to pursue you and to follow after you. Give us the wisdom we do. Help us to apply truth. Help us, help us to skillfully make decisions today, this semester, to be heading on this track. Help us to choose these friends that will help us along the way, that will influence us in that direction, Lord. Help us to attach ourselves to them. Help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to humble ourselves and to serve others because that's where greatness is found. Lord, make it a great, enjoyable, fruitful year. And we look forward to next week as we look at four more lessons I wish I learned when I went to college to be wiser and more like you, to please you and to glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.